This is the Hasidic Story Project with Barack Holman, podcasting from Jerusalem, Israel. This podcast is sponsored by listeners just like you. To become a supporter of this podcast, please go to HasidicStory.com. H-A-S-I-D-I-C Story.com. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll Shalom Aleichem, my sweetest friends. The wars usually here in Israel don't last so long, but apparently this one's going to go on for quite a long time. So even though every week I've been saying, ah, another war episode, I think I'm going to have to stop saying that for now, because there might be very many war episodes. We'll see what Hashem has in store for us. In the meantime, every episode is dedicated to the memory of the people that were murdered, comfort those families, to Be'ezrat Hashem, the returning of the hostages in Gaza in full health, to the victory of the IDF in defeating our enemies, and Be'ezrat Hashem, the continued unity of the Jewish people in the land of Israel and around the world. It's been a stressful few weeks, and I was having a hard time deciding which story to tell this week, so I literally just grabbed the first story that was on the top of one of my piles. And it's a story about Rabbi Chaim Drizin, who was a shaliach in Berkeley for many years. And if the rabbi or anyone from his family is listening, Shalom Aleichem to you. Back in 1972, Berkeley was a pretty wild place. It was at the end of the 60s, the beginning of the 70s, and many lost souls ended up in Berkeley. And Rabbi Drizin would get phone calls regularly, sometimes two or three a week, from parents saying to him that their daughter was in an ashram somewhere and could he help them find her. And so the rabbi was regularly driving around trying to find these lost Jewish souls and it got to the point that he never knew if he was going to make it home in time. So he would travel with his talus and tefillin in his car just in case he got stuck someplace overnight. And one Friday he's sitting in the Chabad house at Berkeley and he gets a phone call. And it's a Mr. Friedman. And he's crying that he knows that his daughter is in California. And she got together with a born-again Christian and told her father that the two of them were going to elope, going to run away to Hawaii and get married. And that she loved him and she also wanted to become a Christian. And the father, Mr. Friedman, said to Rabbi Drizin, Please, can you find my daughter? And the rabbi said, Sure. You know, it's Friday afternoon, it's almost Shabbos. I'll go there Moti Shabbos or Sunday and I'll see what I can do. And the father said, no, Rabbi, you don't understand. They told me, Motzeh Shabbos, they're going to be going to Hawaii. And that's it. You won't be able to help them. Please, I'm begging you. Speak to her before she leaves. And Mr. Friedman gives the rabbi the address where his daughter is. And as they're talking, the rabbi remembers seeing a sign somewhere on the highway past Sacramento called Immigrant Gap, where Mr. Friedman said that his daughter was staying. So the rabbi says to Mr. Friedman, okay, I'll do my best. And he hangs up the phone. And he tells his wife, he doesn't think it's so far away. It's just past Sacramento, maybe two hours. And he thinks he'll be able to make it back in time for Shabbos. So she said, okay, you know, this is our shlichut. This is what we're here for. But remember, after Shabbos, we're having a special event here in the Chabad house. And I need you back. And the rabbi says, yes, of course, no problem. Now, in 1972, there were no cell phones. There were no beepers. There was no GPS. We just got in the car and started driving. And the rabbi got in his car and was driving and driving and driving. And at some point he passed Sacramento and he thinks he must be there. It wasn't so far past Sacramento. 
And eventually he asks for directions and he's told, it's another 75 miles. The rabbi knew that at this point he couldn't go back. So he found a phone booth and he called his wife and he said, I'm really sorry. It doesn't seem like I'm going to be back in time for Shabbos. And of course she was a little disappointed, but she understood. And he got back on the road and he was driving and driving and driving. You can see that it's getting close to the sun setting. And finally he sees a sign on the road, Immigrant Gap, Population 13. He maybe had 30 minutes before Shabbos started. And as he came off the exit off the highway, it was a little gas station that had a small mini market and a post office, everything in one little shop. And he went in and he asked about the address that he was given. And he said, oh yeah, that's about 20 minutes up the road. So the rabbi quickly grabbed anything kosher he could find, some sardines and anything that was there. He pays quickly, jumps in the car, and he knows he has literally minutes before Shabbos starts. So he grabs all of his stuff, goes and knocks on the door of this house in the middle of nowhere. There's a young African-American man. He answers the door, and the rabbi says, I'm looking for Dina Friedman. And he says, yeah, she's here. Come on in. And the boyfriend was very welcoming. He was very nice. But when Dina spotted the rabbi, she was very unhappy to see him. She turned around and walked out of the house without saying a word. Well, at least the rabbi knew that he had found the right person. He turns to the boyfriend and he says, Listen, my friend, I'm an observant Jew and I'm not allowed to travel at this point. Would it be okay if I stayed here overnight? Of course, the rabbi didn't know. If, he, if the guy said no, he'd just have to like sleep on the ground outside. And he said, yeah, sure, no problem. He took a sleeping bag and threw it on the floor in a side room. And the boyfriend and the rabbi started talking. He told them how they wanted to get married and that he was very into being a born-again Christian. And the two of them were. And he's going on and on about how much he likes Dina and how much he loves his religion. And at some point, the rabbi said to him, you know, your girlfriend, Dina, she was born a Jew. And the guy says, yeah, of course I know that. And the rabbi said, she might not know that much about being Jewish, but you're asking her to become a different religion. Don't you think it makes sense that before she joins your religion, she should learn more about her own? And he thought about it for a minute and he said, yeah, you know what, rabbi, you might be right. Maybe after we get married, we can go for a few months and she can learn about Judaism. You have any ideas where she could do that? And the rabbi told the boyfriend about Beis Chana in Minnesota, which is run by Rabbi Manus Friedman. And he said, yeah, sure, that sounds great. In the meantime, Dina had come back and she wasn't even willing to talk with the rabbi. So the rabbi and the boyfriend kept speaking late into the night. In the morning, the rabbi got up, he davened, he ate his crackers and sardines. And then the boyfriend and the rabbi continued speaking. It wasn't the usual Shabbos that the rabbi was used to having. But he understood that he was there for a reason, and he accepted it with love. And the more the rabbi and Dina's boyfriend spoke, the rabbi could see how excited he was about his newfound religion. And he was trying to convince the rabbi to join them as well. But at every opportunity, the rabbi kept mentioning what Dina needs to do, and that Dina is a Jew, and that she needs to make the decision. But Dina was simply ignoring the rabbi. And the rabbi somehow kept up talking the whole Shabbos. He did everything he could. He tried to convince the boyfriend to encourage Dina to be a Jew, to learn more about being a Jew. And even though he was open to it, she wasn't. And he realized after all the self-sacrifice, missing being with his family for Shabbos, missing being at the Chabad house for Shabbos, being stuck in the middle of nowhere with some crackers and sardines for Shabbos. After all of that, he had failed. Now that Shabbos was over, he took his talis and he went to his car and turns on the engine. 
and it was a little two-seater MG. And as soon as he turns on the engine, Dina is standing at the passenger door, holding a little knapsack. She opens the door, puts the bag behind her seat, and sits down, staring straight ahead. The rabbi had no idea what was going on, but he knew better than to start asking questions. He also closed the door, and the two of them took off. And he didn't say a word to her as they were driving. They drove for over 20 minutes. And then finally, Dina turns to the rabbi and says, I'll bet you have no idea why I'm sitting here in the car with you. Do you, rabbi? And the rabbi said, actually, I don't. Would you mind telling me? And then Dina, she starts to break down crying. And she says, all my life, my father has been reminding me that when I was a child, he took me to see the Lubavitcher Rebbe. She told the rabbi that her mother had passed away when she was young, and her father was very worried how she was going to grow up without a mother, and particularly what was going to be with her Jewish identity. And eventually, her father spoke with a Chabadnik, who told them to go see the Lubavitcher Rebbe. They left their home in Manhattan, went all the way to Crown Heights to have a private audience with the Rebbe. And there her father asked the Rebbe for a bracha, for a blessing that his daughter Dina grow up as a Jew. And the Rebbe gave his blessing, and then he added, if you're ever having any difficulties with your daughter's Judaism, call on Chabad, and we will be there to help you. And all my life, my father's been telling me that story. And then you show up at our house just before Shabbos. Did my father tell you all of this? And the Rebbe said, no. He didn't mention the Rebbe at all. He didn't mention anything, not about your mother, not the Rebbe, not the blessing, nothing. She said, well, that's how my father is. He doesn't like to say very much. But I'm telling you, Rabbi, you are fulfilling a promise that the Rebbe made to my father when I was a little girl. And that's the reason that I'm sitting here next to you in the car right now. The whole Shabbos, I said to myself, I don't want to see this Rabbi. Not interested. I'm happy with my decision. I'm happy with my boyfriend. I'm happy with my life. But what kind of thing is this that the Rabbi shows up just before Shabbos? I knew it was the story coming true. I knew it was the Rebbe's promise coming true. And I couldn't accept it. But when I saw that you were going to leave, something inside of me said, I have to come with you. So the Rabbi took her back to Berkeley and arranged a flight for her to Minneapolis. He took her to the airport and she went to Beis Chana and eventually became Torah observant. And apparently she's living in Jerusalem today. And then of course... The rabbi called the Rebbe's office to give a report of what happened and to say that he had fulfilled the promise that the Rebbe made to Mr. Friedman all those years ago. And the Rebbe simply responded, Thank you. Thank you for this good news. Because that's a true Rebbe, my sweetest friends. Rebbe stands for Rosh B'nai Yisrael, the head of the Jewish people. And when you're connected to a true Rebbe, whether it's a Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rebbe Nachman, your own Rebbe, whichever Rebbe it is, if it's a true Rebbe, the Rebbe feels the pain of a Jew that's so distant, just like you would feel the pain, God forbid, of a tiny little prick on your small toe. That's a Rebbe. And the Rebbe knew that the day would come that Mr. Friedman would need to turn to one of his shluchim because the shluchim of the Rebbe, the emissaries of the Rebbe, are literally extensions of the Rebbe himself. Just like when a brit milah, a circumcision, a bris is performed, if the father doesn't feel physically or emotionally ready to actually cut off the foreskin, which is the mitzvah for him to do, he's allowed to give the mohel, the circumciser, the right to be his shaliach, to be his messenger. 
And when the mohel makes the cut, it's as if the father is doing it. And when the shaliach does the Rebbe's work, it's as if the Rebbe is doing it. And so everybody who chooses to be a shaliach of the Rebbe can be one. All over my neighborhood, the Chabadnikim have a little sign on the door. It says, Beit Chabad. And I once wanted to put on our door, Beit Chabad. But my wife wasn't so excited about it. So I wrote, Beit Hulman, the Holman house. And in parentheses, in very small letters, I wrote Chabad. Have another story for you, my sweetest friends. This was literally the next story in the pile because I told you I have so much on my mind. I wasn't able to go through the stories like I usually do and consciously decide what I was going to tell. Just grabbed two stories and said, That's it. This is what I'm telling this week. So it's a story about Reb Mendel Futterfuss, which of course you can never go wrong with stories about Reb Mendel. He's one of the famous Chabad Hasidim in modern times. He spent many years in the Gulag in Siberia for building Jewish schools, mikvahs, helping Jews to flee the Soviet Union, for doing all kinds of Jewish activities. And for the years that he was in the Gulag, he was always facing death and darkness. And even though it was a horrible place to be, afterwards he said those were the best years of his life. And one of the reasons is because he came out with so many lessons from the Gulag. Because, as Reb Mendel said, there's a teaching in the name of Reb Zusha of Hanapoli, who taught that from a thief, you can learn seven lessons in how to serve God. You should be discreet. A thief doesn't normally tell people what he does. A thief needs to be fearless. A thief needs to be mindful of the details. He needs to be patient, eager and willing, confident and optimistic, and to never give up and always try again. And of course, if you could learn those things from a thief, you can learn them from a chassid because they apply to a chassid as well. So Reb Mendel said, Reb Zusha obviously never sat in Siberia because if he did, he would know that you wouldn't just be able to learn seven things from a thief. You could learn thousands of things from a thief. For example, one of the prisoners in one of the camps that Reb Mendel was in was an old Cossack. And as everybody knows, the Cossacks hated the Jews, but the Cossacks were loyal to the Tsar. And since the Soviets had overthrown the Tsar, anyone who remained loyal to him was thrown into prison. And there, in the Gulag, even though the Cossacks hated the Jews, they were all prisoners there. In one long, cold, Siberian winter night... Old Cossack and Reb Mendel are sitting together in the barracks because the guards were scared to let the prisoners work outside in the dark, not knowing what they might be up to. And the old Cossack opens up his heart to Reb Mendel and starts reminiscing about his horse. His eyes started to tear up and his voice started shaking with emotion. And Reb Mendel looks at him with this face like, you're crying over a horse? And the old Cossack looks at Reb Mendel and he says, This wasn't just a horse. This was a Cossack horse. There's nothing in all of creation like a Cossack horse. Remendel says, no, tell me more. And the old Cossack says, a regular horse in Russia costs one month's wages, five rubles. 
A workhorse will cost you two months of wages, 10 rubles. But a Cossack horse can cost 500 or even 600 rubles. You see, a Cossack horse is different than all the other horses. Nothing comes close to him because the Cossack's horse had to have a different heart. Not only would it do anything its master told him, it would jump into fire. It would jump over trees. If it could, it would even jump over houses. Anything. It was stronger, braver, faster than any other animal alive. And you want to know why, Mendel? No, he says, why? Because a Cossack horse has a different heart. And at that point, the old Cossack takes a deep draw on his cigarette. He says, now, Mendel, listen up. I'm going to tell you, how do you catch a Cossack horse? I'm going to tell you. And it's a story. So listen up. As he's talking, he's breathing in deeply, and the smoke is coming out of his mouth and his nostrils. He says, we Cossacks were experts at this. There was a special group of us that would wander around the mountains and the fields on horseback, looking for herds of wild horses. And this is very important, because a Cossack without a horse is like a Cossack without legs. He's like a cripple. Do you understand? A Cossack without a horse? There's no such thing. He says the group would go around, and if they were lucky, they found a large herd, maybe a thousand, two thousand horses, and they would get them all wound up and stampede them, running in the direction of the nearest river. These were great experts, I told you. Sometimes they would go for days until they got to the river. But when they got to the river, they would start screaming and shooting their guns in the air and force the herd into the widest, deepest part of the river. See, horses can swim, so they had to get over to the other side, through the river's current, and if they didn't, they would die. Now, on the other side was another group of Cossacks that were waiting, and the whole thing was planned from the beginning, and they would watch to see what the horses did. There were always three types of horses. Most were regular horses. They'd make it to the other side, and they'd run for their lives. Then there were the older horses, and they couldn't get across, and they would drown. And then there were the young horses. They had the stamina, so they didn't get tired, but they didn't have the strength to cross over. So they're just floundering in the middle of the river, trying to keep afloat. And then he sat up straight, and he became more serious. And he said, but sometimes, not always, but sometimes, there was a fourth type of horse. Maybe only one or two out of the thousands that we put through the river. And that was some type of crazy horse. They would make it across the river, but instead of running away, they would turn around and look back to see if there were horses in trouble, and they would jump back into the river to save them. And at this point, the Cossack was crying. <laughs> and he had his arms stretched as if he was hugging his old horse. And he said they would swim to the young horses, grab them with their teeth by their mane, and start dragging them out of the river. They couldn't stand to see their fellow horses in danger. And at that point, the Cossacks would throw some paint on these special horses and chase them for days until they caught them. And then it would take many months of hard work until they were trained. But the main thing was the heart. It was a horse with a heart. And that Mendel was a Cossack's horse. And Reb Mendel said he immediately got the point. The Cossack's horse is a Chassid. A Chassid has to be crazy, like a Cossack's horse and risk everything for their fellow Jew. The Chassid can't stand to see his brother or sister in danger of drowning. They can't bear to just live for themselves and learn Torah and do the mitzvot just to cross over the river of life and go to heaven. 
A chassid has to have a different heart. And this is the love of our fellow Jew that the Baal Shem Tov strive to teach us all. And without realizing it, when I told the story, my sweetest friends, this is what's happening right now here in Israel, in Eretz Yisrael. Everywhere I turn, people are literally doing everything to help one another. We have hundreds of thousands of people who have been displaced from the north and the south. I was just in the Shuk today, in a store, just randomly talking with one of the sellers. And she said the person that came before me lived on the northern border, and she was evacuated a few days ago. And she was sent pictures that her home was destroyed by a missile from Hezbollah. And we were looking at each other like, what do you do when your home is destroyed? And for now, we don't know. But what we do know is everybody's bringing them food and clothes and books and toys and literally anything anyone needs, anything anyone can do, they're doing. And I'm trying to do my part as well, my sweetest friends. We're all trying to be Hasidim like the Cossack's horse. And Be'ezat Hashem will be there to carry one another over the river to the other side with peace and health and prosperity and joy that we'll be able to continue serving Hashem here in the Holy Land. Thank you so much for listening. As always, my sweetest friends, I want to thank all of the supporters of the podcast, especially Holy Sister Michelle and Holy Brother Archie listening in Colorado. Thank you for your contribution. And to everybody who contributes to the podcast, the people that bought me coffee and that give a monthly and a yearly contribution and that send in one-time contributions and just send me messages and likes and share the stories with your friends. Thank you, everyone, for listening and being a part of this project. Please continue sharing and telling your friends about the podcast. And if anyone's still sticking around and you're interested in reading an article that I wrote called Simple Answers to Difficult Questions, where I answer some of the most difficult questions Israelis are being asked in the media, I'll put a link down below in the description, and you're welcome to read the piece. So until next week, my sweetest friends, we should hear good news. Take care of yourselves. Have a good Shabbos and sei gesund. Sei gesund. There's nothing in all of creation like a Cossack horse. <laughs> <laughs>